Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was the timeless Meet Me on the Corner by Linda's Fan. And I've got the writer of that track and uh, co-founder of Linda's Fan here, Rod Clements. Welcome, Rod. Thank you, Jason. Hello, everybody. It's fantastic to hear from you and heard that there's plans afoot for Linda's Fan to hopefully start touring again when it were allowed and it's safe to do so. And hopefully, fingers crossed, you'll be able to get that December show at Newcastle, which is the tradition of Linda's fans to do as well? Yes, it is. We were looking forward to doing last Christmas because it was actually a, the band's 50th anniversary last year. And, uh, and we had lots of big plans, um, ap- apart from gigs and festivals and so forth. We had a, a, a bit of a special Christmas show planned and we were going to have, we had a, a local brewery in Newcastle about to brew us a, a special ale and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of things going on. And, of course, that all went down the swanee because of COVID. And, you know, we're just hanging on now to see what happens. As soon as the lockdown is lifted or gigs are able to happen again, we'll be out there. We've, we've got gigs in the pipeline that have been put back three or four times now. But we're hoping by the summer something will be uh, will be happening. Fingers crossed. So everyone needs to keep an eye out on, uh, is it lindisfan.com to... That's the one, yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about Meet Me on the Corner. I think it was the first big hit for Lindisfan, uh, certainly top 10 or top 5. Do you remember the, the spark or, you know, what inspired you for that track? It, it does have a bit of a timeless appeal. Thanks. Yes, uh, I, I do. I was living in a a little house in Tynemouth at the time, at the back of Tynemouth Station, with a, a young wife and a, a little baby girl. Money was a bit scarce back in those days. This is before the band took off or, yeah. or, uh, or, or anything. And I was just sitting noodling on the guitar one night, and uh, I came up with this little tune, kind of like a finger-picking tune. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a nice tune. I'd better try and remember that. And just over the course of about half an hour or so. And uh, the next evening, I thought of that tune again. 
And I thought, uh, I'll try and write, write some words for that. And there was a street light at the end of the road. And, and that was the light that was in my mind. It was actually on, on the corner of the street. And I just kind of visualized that, and it all just fell into place. Again, in about half an hour, the song virtually wrote itself. And it's one of those songs that has had appeal for other artists, and there have been various cover versions. One of the artists I spoke in uh, recent weeks was Melanie. Yeah, yeah. As soon as um, people heard, you know, would you ask Rod what you thought of her version? I think I think her version was called Dream Seller. She, she did, yes. She called it Dream Seller. I mean, I mean, it was very Melanie. I thought, I thought yeah. she sweetened it up a bit, maybe. It was a nice version, a good arrangement, and and so forth. She she actually came to a Lindisfarne gig in London once with her fella and um, she came backstage and we chatted a bit and, and she asked me what I thought of it and I told her I thought it was a bit um, prettyfied and I don't think she was very pleased because yeah. her, her fella said I, I think we should maybe be going now and uh, and that was that <laughs> but you know full marks to her for doing it and it's it's great when anybody does it I mean there was uh, yeah there's been a couple of versions of it over the years. There's a really nice one now by a girl called Elizabeth Liddle from um, up this way. I think she's from ah, yeah. Chesley Street, Durham area. It's on YouTube. Yeah, it's quite new, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is very new. It'd be good to talk about the roots of, of Lindisfarne, the roots of kind of in blues and then the folk influence started to come in. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the very, very beginning... We were just young lads copying the Shadows and then the Beatles and then the Kinks and things. Yeah. But then we uh, we got into blues through, I guess, basically through the Rolling Stones, because you know at that age, sixteen or whatever, we were we were big Stones fans. But um, I, I always give the Stones the credit for giving the credit to the originators. You know, they always told you where yeah. where their music came from whether it was uh, Elmore James or, or Muddy Waters who, or whoever. You know, anybody who had an um, inclination towards that kind of music would follow those uh, references back and discover the originals. And um, the band we were in at the time, it started off, I, I was in boarding school in Durham, actually, and I had a, a band there, which we called the Downtown Faction. And then after I'd left school, uh, I joined up with some lads in North Shields, and we called that band the Downtown Faction as well. And, and that became a blues band, basically modelled on the sort of Paul Butterfield band and playing blues and uh, Chicago blues and, and stuff. And then kind of expanding into playing Dylan and other singer-songwritery stuff that related to blues early Fairport Convention were a bit of an influence before they became a folk band. You know, they were uh, early on, first couple of albums, they were covering a lot of uh, American stuff, early Joni Mitchell and things like that. And I, I thought they were great then. I actually preferred them then to, to what they turned into. Yeah, and at the same time, we were kind of running out of gigs because the wind had changed. It was the beginnings of disco and heavy metal and glam and stuff like that and and we didn't want to go down that route but we discovered a way around it which was going into the folk clubs and playing Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie songs and stuff like that which weren't a million miles from what we were doing before 
it was through the folk clubs that we connected with Alan Ho, who was, right. you know, he was he was a well-established local singer-songwriter at that time, and uh, we we got to doing gigs with him, and uh, and we joined forces. Originally, I I saw it as a kind of um, Dylan and the band type arrangement, hmm. but it became a it, well, it became Lindisfarne. On the first Lindisfarne album, you can hear that that forging or, or blending of, of those different influences. And Alan's songwriting was uh, yeah. you know, really strong at the start. Lady Eleanor, yeah. which eventually became a big hit. And, and then you've got the harmonies and, and Ray's mandolin there. It's it's just a lovely sound. Yeah, thanks. It, it was a very unusual combination of influences. It just happened by accident. You know, we were just, just stumbled on it. But as soon as we did we realised we were onto something. Uh, and I think a lot of other people did as well. Yeah, I'm pleased we did. Then 
and creeping on towards me, licking lips with tongues of fire. A host of golden demons screaming lust and beast desire. And when it seemed for certain that the screams could get no higher, I heard a voice above the rest screaming, You're alive. But it's all right, Lady Soon after, the fog on the Tyne album itself and, and the track itself were absolutely huge records. After playing locally, that must have been such a shift where you become top of the pops and, and you've got going nationwide and and uh, eventually into the US. That, that must have been quite a remarkable shift. A heck of a shift. Uh, I remember when we first started doing the business on the road in in, in Britain, uh, around about the time of the first album, the nicely out tune album, we were turning up in towns to play at the local rock club, you know, that, which is a circuit which more or less disappeared now. Places like Mothers in, in Birmingham, you know, and we'd drive into a town and see a queue of people down the street and think, I wonder what they're all queuing up for. And it was our gig. Uh, and the college circuit as well, you know, the, the university students' unions and things like that. It was a great circuit. But that was the kind of bread-and-butter gig circuit that we developed through before we started having the hits. And then when when Meet Me on the Corner was a hit, it was just a, a quantum jump from that to you know concert halls and big festivals and all kinds of things. The first time I went to America, actually, in I think it was 71 or early 72, Charisma Records put us out there to open for bigger bands like the Kinks mm. and uh, Frank Zappa, the Beach Boys. We, we did a few gigs op- opening for them. And um, it was all fine. You know, it was good fun and, and great. But it was pretty low budget. But it was while we were there that Meet Me on the Corner went top 10 in Britain. And it suddenly all changed. You know, the... Um, the record, Electra, that was the record company who was over there, realized that we weren't something. And um, the, the, the minibus turned into a limo. The hotels got better. The gigs got bigger. The tour got extended. We were playing week-long residencies in as headliners in clubs on both coasts. It was an unbelievable time, really. When you hear the, the title track of that, as well as Meet Me on the Corner of uh, the Fog on the Tine album, there seems to be a bit more of a tightness in the production. Were things getting a bit more polished by then? Well, that's down to Bob Johnston. Right. You, you, you know Bob Johnston? He was... Um, producer. Yeah, he right. was he was Dylan's producer and Johnny Cash, Leonard Cohen. Wow. Loads of people. Uh, and he got shipped over from the States by... Charisma Records to produce our second album, 
and he did tighten things up a lot. The, f- the first day in the studio in uh, Trident in London, we had a bunch of new songs, and he threw them all out, and he said, what else have we got? So we played you know, old stuff from the back catalogue, from the back burner, and he said, yeah, that's better, let's just go in and do it. So it was all done very much on the fly. He He was very much into spontaneity, first takes, things like that. But then he'd take it away and strip it right back. He, he'd edit out superfluous stuff. It, it was a much more stripped-down sound. It was more more the elemental Lindisfarne so, sound that people associate the band with than the um, eclectic sound you were talking about on the first album. Sitting in a sleazy snack bar Sucking sickly sausage rolls Slipping down slowly Slipping down sideways Think I'll sign off the door Cause the fog on the tine is all mine, all mine The fog on the tine is all mine The fog on the tine is all mine, all mine The fog on the tine is all mine Could a copper catch a crooked cuff and maker? Could a copper comprehend that a crooked cuff and maker's just an undertaker who undertakes to be your friend? And the fog on the tine is all mine, all mine. The fog on the tine is all mine. The fog on the tine is all mine, all mine. The fog on the tine is all mine. Tell the truth tomorrow, today will take its time To tell you what tonight will bring Presently we'll have a pint or two together Everybody do their thing Swing together, we can have a wee wee, we can have a wet on the wall. If someone slips a whisper that it's simple, sister, slap them down and slap it on their smalls. Cause the fog on the tine is all mine, all mine. The fog on the tine is all mine. The fog on the tine is all mine, all mine. The fog on the tine is all mine. Fog on the tine is all mine, all mine. Fog on the tine is all mine. Fog on the tine is all mine, all mine. Fog on the tine is all mine. Fog 
So was it difficult to follow up the Fog on the Tyne album? Because um, next we have Dingley Dell and uh, one of your tracks, uh, Don't Ask Me. But Bob Johnston was back for that. But there seemed to be an unhappiness in, in terms of the way that that record sounds, certainly initially. Oh, yeah, there was a few things about that. Uh, one thing that was that Bob Johnston was back for that, but he wasn't only back, he took a back seat. Oh. He, he didn't seem all that interested in what was going on, so it didn't have the same focused, stripped-down approach that Fogger Matine did. Internal problems in the band were starting to surface. Um, Alan was getting increasingly unhappy and frustrated because of all the touring and traveling. Um, He he didn't like being away from home that much. It was affecting his writing. uh, And I think, to a certain extent, that that shows up on the album. I mean, I, I think there are some great tracks on that album. Wake Up Little Sister, I think, is one of Alan's finest songs, which survives in the band's repertoire to to this day. It wasn't a happy time. There was things starting to move in different directions within the band. As I said, Alan wasn't happy. I think as well, because we'd flown so high with the last one, um, some people were waiting for us to fall or trip up or whatever.
Brisma released the Lindisfarne live album um, in 73, which must have been around the time of, of the split. And that was a document of a live show that he did in December 71. And we have a Train in G Major. It was great to document the band at the time because you were known as fantastic live band then, raucous, and, and many people went to see the band for a good time. And even now, got same spirit. Is that an accurate representation of how you know many people felt about going to a Lindisfarne gig? Yes, at the time, absolutely, because it had almost nothing done to it. There was there was hardly any post production. I don't think we were even a hundred percent aware that it was being recorded. It just was, in in the purest sense, a record of a gig, and it was actually put out after the band had split. Charisma trying to keep the ball rolling, really by putting that out. Some of it, I think it's great. Some of it, uh, I think, goes on a bit. But, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's a good version of Train and G. It's a good, a good version of quite a few of the songs. But, but, yes, it is an absolutely accurate picture of what went down that night. <laughs>
Linda's fan lineup fractured, and um, you was it Ray from Jack the Lad? Me, Ray, and Cy. Right, okay. Yeah, Simon Cow. Alan basically wanted to go his own way, and Jack I went with him, and they became Linda's fan Mark too. But the uh, material, some of the material in that early period of Jack the Lad still holds its own. Like, like why can't I be satisfied? Is that one of yours? It is. I wrote that. Tipped for the charts by John Peel. But uh, unfortunately, he didn't have a 100% record of getting his prophecies right. So That song is, seems to be one of the most well-known from uh, Jack the Lad. I, I would say so, yeah. Right. The song hasn't gone away. I mean, I've, I've always kept it in my solo repertoire, and the band does it still now from time to time. I thought it was a great record. Actually, it was yeah. I was I was really pleased with it. Not not just because I played three different things on it, but mm. uh, just because of the way it turned. It was a good fun album to make. Yeah. A bit like the first Lindisfarne album, nicely out of tune in a way. We we just threw everything at it. You know, loads of, loads of overdubs, people doubling on their second instruments, and all kinds of things.
seem that long after the work that you did with Jack the Lad that you were went on touring with Michael Chapman I mean I, I, I lasted a year with Jack the Lad I, I didn't think it was working out very well mainly because we were only a four piece band and we, we couldn't reproduce the sound we wanted to make on stage very easily I, I, I just felt it time for a change um, I'd split up with my wife I was living on my own in London to, yeah, and, and just, just wanted to change really so I decided to go freelance, which was a bit of a rash decision at the time, considering I had absolutely nothing to look forward to. But through a chance meeting with Martin Carthy, mm. I got offered the Michael Chapman gig very shortly after leaving Jack the Lad. And I, I didn't know Michael, but I was aware of him. I, was, uh, I, I knew his music, I, I knew what he did. And uh, Martin passed the word on that I was scouting about uh, and I got a call from Andrew Michael Chapman's wife the following week we had a rehearsal in a little studio in London just Michael Keith Hartley and myself and I got offered the job and then came back up to Michael's in Northumberland and and, and we put a band together and when you look at the the uh, musicians that that Michael worked with and I think including the uh, the title track of The Man Who Hated Mornings. Some great musicians, yeah. as well as yourself, working with him. I mean, it was really a stellar lineup. Yes, indeed. Michael's a musician's musician. He's always attracted big or cult names. Uh, I mean, right from the very beginning, he had Mick Ronson in his band. Yeah. Uh, Rick Kemp, of course. Mm. Uh, on, the, on the production side, you know, people like Don Nix. He's got contacts reaching all over. A unique character, really, Michael. What's he like to work with in in the studio? Does he give you much freedom, or does he give you a sort of clear idea about what he wants in terms of the final sound? Michael gives you total freedom, whether it's live, in the studio, or whatever. If he doesn't like what you do, I don't know what happens, because (laughs) fortunately that's never happened to me. You know, Michael's so much his own man. I think anything he does, he could do it totally on his own or he could do it with a band if he wants to. Uh, And what he does doesn't alter that much. It's just his own character. Uh, His very idiosyncratic style comes through whatever. I mean, mean, you know, he appreciates good support, you know, and solid foundations and, 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 and stuff like that. But he's... He's 
he's, he's just great to work with.
even though I think you said it's a it was a risk going on your own steam and working with other artists very prolific and, and successful in that period you you were on the the hit version of uh, Streets of London by Ralph McTell but very uh, notably how did that link up happen then well you know I, I really got lucky not just with the Michael thing mm. but um, Ralph we had known for many years because when we first teamed up with Alan to do the folk clubs Ralph came up and did the headline slot at one of the gigs we did uh, and and we got chatting and he liked what we did and uh, it, it, I think it was a time when we were maybe a little bit down about our prospects maybe that week things weren't looking too good but he went oh you guys have really got something special you've got to stick together and things like that so um, I think he was a really nice guy and just very supportive and some years after that after I'd left Jack the Lad I went to one of their gigs it was actually a a warm up gig for a tour they were about to embark on supporting Ralph so Ralph was at the gig as well and uh, and we got talking and he asked me what I was doing and I said I'm just about to start a tour with Michael Chapman and he said oh nice right are you you joining his band and I said well kind of but I'm open for other things as well and he said well I've um, got something you might be interested in do you fancy working with Bert Jansch you know my, my my jaw dropped probably visibly <laughs> and I went well wow yeah uh, and Ralph said well he's here do you want to meet him and I said well yeah of course I do yeah what, what what's going on and he said um my brother, who's also my manager, has taken Bert on, and he's also just joined the Charisma label, which which had um, Jack the Lad and previously had Lindisfarne. And uh, do you want to be in on it? I said, of course I do. Sounds great. Lo and behold, about ten minutes later, I went to the Blue, and standing next to me there was Bert. And that was the first time we met. Wow. And I said, um, Ralph's just been telling me. And he went, oh, yeah, right, yeah. So we got to know each other in those relatively intimate circumstances. But um, the first thing we did was Ralph and Bert and I went into Air Studios in London to record a version of In the Bleak Midwinter, which was going to be Bert's Christmas single. Yeah, uh, yeah. We finished it pretty quickly, and then Ralph said, we've got some time left. Do you mind if we do one for me? So we did Streets of London, and he, after I'd laid the, the bass down to to Ralph's vocal and guitar, he brought Prelude in to do backing vocals and added a few other bits and pieces, and that was the version that went, I think, to number two in um, Christmas 74, I think it was. Have you seen the old man in the closed-down market Kicking up the papers with his worn-out shoes in his eyes you see no pride And a loosely at his side Yesterday's paper 
telling yesterday's news So how can you tell me you're lonely And they said for you that the sun don't shine Oh, let me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of London I'll show you something to make you change your mind And have you seen the old girl who walks the streets of London Dirt in her hair And her clothes in rags She's no time for talking She just keeps right on walking Carrying her home Into carrier bags So how can you tell me You're lonely And it's safe for you That the sun don't shine Let me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of London I'll show you something to make you change your mind And in the all-night cafe At a quarter past eleven Same old man Sitting there on his own Looking at the world Over the rim of his teacup In each tea lesson on And he wanders home alone So how can you tell me That you're lonely Safe for you that the sun don't shine Or let me take you by the hand And lead you through the streets of London I'll show you something To make you change your mind And have you seen the old man outside Siemens mission Memory fading with The metal ribbons That he wears And in our winter City the rain Cries a little pity For one more Forgotten hero And a world that doesn't Care So how Can you tell me That you're lonely Say for you that the sun don't shine Oh, let me take you by the hand And lead you through the streets of London I'll show you something To make you change your mind Bert's single, In the Bleak Midwinter, did nothing but it has cropped up on a Christmas compilation album called, I think, you know, The Thousand Best Christmas Songs of All Time yeah. or something like that. And, 
and has had a very long shelf life ever since. It's an evergreen on, on many of those Christmas compilations on now, so um, it's got a quite a long long life. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad of that because it's a good piece of work. Mind, I, mm. I, I loved everything Bert ever did. Uh, you know, Bert was the closest thing to a genius I've ever worked with. Yeah. Yeah, and and we had a, we had a very close association. He he lived in my house for uh, a year and a half. We were kind of like the odd couple because we both ended relationships and we mm. supported each other and just sat around drinking coffee and playing the guitar all day and then going to the pub at night and going out and doing the occasional gig. have been quite a, a natural and easy thing for, for you and Bert to collaborate. You're down as a producer for a rare conundrum, Bert's album. Yes, I was. Bert made two albums in uh, in America at about the time I was um, getting together with him, L.A. Turnaround and Santa Barbara Honeymoon. L.A. Turnaround is one of, my, one of my favourite Bert albums. Yeah. Santa Barbara, not so much. But after those two American albums, uh, the, the idea of the management and the record company was that he would kind of get back to basics, back to his roots, do an album in, in London. And I was honoured to be asked to produce it, which was a high point of my career, actually. I loved doing it because I had not only Bert to work with, you know, and his songs. And then he, had, he had a great bunch of songs for it and his playing was great. His voice was great, 
I was working anyway with Pick Weathers, the drummer. We were kind of, and this was in his pre-Dire Straits days, we were kind of like a bass and drums session team that did bits and pieces for for various people around the studios. So it was me and Pick, and we, we got uh, oh, Mike Piggott, the fiddle player, who was later in Pentangle. He, he was he was a great guy to work with. Ralph came and played harmonica for us. It was it was just a, a good little team. It was a good little musical community at that time. And uh, yeah, I was that album Reconundrum remains one of my highlights. I think it's got a great clear sound to it. Yeah. When you listen to Looking for a Home. I mean, what what studio were we, we at? It must have been a, a pretty good studio to get. It was. It was Air Air Studios in Oxford Street in London. Oh, was yeah. that was that George Martin's? It it, it was. Um, he, he wasn't around then. Right. Uh, he he started it. I'm not sure if he still owned it. It was. Right. You know, it was, it was a pretty big business, and I think he was off in Martinique or whatever by then. Yeah. Ne- never saw him, but it was a classy place. Yeah.
right, Christmas 1976, the original lineup of Lindisfarne got back together. Is that right? Yes, it is. That was something that happened by a roundabout way. And it, it kind of wasn't anything to do with me because I was busy doing all this other stuff. Barry McKay, who was a Newcastle promoter, and he had a record shop as well, uh, had the idea of putting... He was managing Ray Jackson, actually, at the time. He had the idea of uh, recreating the Christmas concerts of the early 70s. Uh, and the early 70s Christmas concerts it only happened by, by chance, really, because we asked our London agent to book us at home for Christmas so that we could end the tour in our hometown. So, and we only did uh, two or three in the early 70s. The first one was at the Folk Club in Whitley Bay. The second one was, I think, 71 and 72 were in Newcastle City Hall. They 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 got a kind of a, a, a reputation, you know, was, they were talked about afterwards. So Barry McKay had this idea of putting a band together to uh, to recreate them in '76. Uh, I, I think he I think he booked two nights and they sold out, so he added a third. And then in '77, it happened even more so. Yeah. By the end of the '77 concerts, would decided to to get back together. He, he was he was making big offers, basically yeah. offers we couldn't refuse. Some uh, I don't know. It's, some needed it more than others, shall we say? And uh, and I was I was in two minds because I you know I liked doing the other stuff, Bert and uh, and all that. But I, I thought you know what what the heck? I'll sign up for this and. Boy, did I sign up for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on and off continued since, in a way. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, the the thing was that the band, when we got back together, 78 was yeah. the the official date. Yeah. There was a bit of freedom built into it that we could still do outside projects and things like that. And, and we all did. You know, I continued to play with other people. I played with Michael on and off, and I played with Bert on and off, and Bert actually recruited me into a, a later version of Pentangle for a while. So, so yeah, yeah, we carried on. The uh, the first album when you, you reformed was Back and Forth, but that's notable for one of Alan's great songs, Run For Home. Again, a, a really nice sound to that record. I think this time, is it Gus Dudgeon was on board? Gus Dudgeon was the producer, yeah. Uh, what a great guy, and what a great ear for a song and, and for a production he had. Mind, he was, uh, let, let, let's say he wasn't bothered, he wasn't troubled by budgets. <laughs> uh, he, he, he wanted to get everything right, whatever it cost. So that's, that's a bit of a mixed blessing, isn't it? It, it is a bit. Mm. But, you know, you, you can't argue with the results. And, you know, whatever it cost, it's a great sounding album and it's a great sounding single. And never heard anything of Gosses that didn't sound great, to be honest. Mm. But uh, he, he, he was demanding but enjoyable to work with. Great guy, very witty. Had, had worked with Michael Chapman previously, actually. There was a, there's a few interlocking strands there. <laughs>
Next, we get to an artist and songwriter that you've, you and Lindisfarne have had a connection for, well, for at least 50 years and um, still a, a strong connection. Uh, we have Rab Noakes and I Can't Get Enough of You. And I think this is from his self-titled album in 1980. Lindisfarne Rab songs were, were actually on um, some of the early Lindisfarne material, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were. Lindisfarne and Rab go back a long way to the old folk club days on, on Tyneside before we were Lindisfarne, in fact, because the the folk club circuit used to be a lot bigger than it is now. Every every small town had its own folk club in the Tyneside region, you know, Newcastle area. There was maybe uh, 10. So, so somebody, it, it was worth somebody's while to come in from elsewhere, from London or, or Liverpool or wherever, or in Rab's case, from from Fife in, in Scotland, to come down for a week and play in a different club every night for 10 quid or whatever it was. So, you know, end of the week, 70 quid, not bad money in those days. And there was always, you'd either stay with the same person through the week or you'd stay with different people. It, it, it was a network, you know. And Rab came down and, and played that scene, and we got to know him through that, through doing the same gigs. We liked his songs, we liked his style, we liked his playing. It seemed to be mutual. Where we got friendly, we had we had a lot of good times. So we did one of his songs, "Turn It Up Here," on nicely out to tune the first album, and we did "Together Forever" on the Fog on the Tyne album. Rab and I are still going out as a duo called Alive and Picking when we get the chance, which uh, hasn't been much lately, but uh, we still do those two songs. Brilliant. And that uh, the, yeah. the track you're talking about, Can't Get Enough of You, that was Rab roped me in to play bass on it. That was done at Psalm Studios in London with um, Tommy Eyre on keyboards, Richard Brunton on guitar, uh, Liam Janocki on drums and, and that was a band for a week <laughs> and, uh, and good fun it was too You can hear that on that record it's got a very um, upbeat and accessible sound you, yeah. know, you hear it once and Yeah, I agree, Yeah, again Rab's good to work with, you know his songs are very playable you, you don't have to think too hard about them or, or figure them out it just they just tell you what to play Natural? Yeah, yeah I'm not 
have a track that um, it feels to me has a life of its own <laughs> uh, can't do right for doing wrong oh right yeah I think that was released on a Lindisfarne album in the, the late 90s was it actually written in that period uh, yes it was it was after Alan died yeah. it, Alan died in 1995 and so the band well the band obviously went on hiatus for, for a while it had been it hadn't been a great period the couple of years before that to be honest, I mean, you know, in a, in a, yeah. over the course of a 50-year history, you're bound to have a few ups and downs. And, and it was a bit of a down before that. And Alan was making a solo album when he died, actually. And Dave Holdenham, his son-in-law now, finished it off, completed the album for him. Great album called Statues and Liberties, one of his best. Uh, after Alan died in November '95, we had to uh, obviously there was a, uh, a grieving period and time of, of not doing anything, and then then what shall we do next? So we brought Billy Mitchell in, not as a replacement, but as an extra hand, you know, to and we kind of shared out the various jobs and the. Um, songwriting job that Alan had fulfilled previously fell to me and uh, I didn't particularly have a 
great lot of stuff in the pot. So I teamed up with Nigel Stonier, who I knew through having done sessions for him. And uh, he's a great writer, a great talent. Basically, we sat down and wrote an album. There were good contributions from other band members, but we provided the bulk of the songs. And one of the first ones we wrote together was Can't Do Right for Doing Wrong. Was um, Alan's sad death when um, Linda's fan regrouped, did that push you a bit forward in terms of yeah, almost having yeah, to definitely. create songs? It's a funny thing, really, because before, you know, back in the early days, I wrote quite a bit. And then Alan came into the band. Yeah. And he had like 400 songs already. And a hundred of them are fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's the repertoire sorted out for the next 10 years, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't stop writing altogether, but I had some hard competition. And and then I was playing with other, you know, I was, I was playing with Michael and Bert and Ralph and people like that. And uh, there, there was no requirement of me to write songs. Also, I mean, I'm... I'm lazy, so I just didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> but then, when the requirements came about again, I had the helping hand of Nigel to assist me. So I would basically go along with unformed ideas for songs, and Nigel would help me finish them. And he did a great job of it. If I seem kind of blue to you It's just cause I'm not getting through to you And I'll do anything you want me to Just so we can get along And if I should have a mind to say What is it makes you want to be this way Could be today's just not mine
but I see too late the chances passed me by. We could get to where we want to be with just a little faith and honesty instead of drifting where we don't belong. But I can't do right for doing wrong Can't do right for doing wrong Can't do right for doing wrong Can't do right for It seemed to take you a while to um, to do your first solo album. I think it was um, the year 2000, wasn't it? Uh, are you talking about Stamping Ground? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Again, Nigel, because he's a, he's a producer, you know, and he's an enabler right. and, and an encourager. And he puts things together, you know, he puts ideas together with money, together with time, together with opportunity and studios and things like that. And he said to me, I used to go down to his place in Cheshire for writing sessions and things like that. And we'd, we'd work a bit and then we'd go to the pub. And on the way back from the pub one night, he said, when are you going to do a solo album then? I said, oh, I don't know. Well, uh, you know, I've made one. You know, it was a bit, bit, bit of a mm. bits and pieces on the fly kind of job. And he said, well, when are you going to make a proper one? And I said, oh, I don't know. So we put the idea together. That he um, would produce Stamping Ground, and some of them, some of the songs were ones I had already. Some of them were co-writes, but uh, it involved some of Nigel's team, like uh, Paul Burgess on drums, um, Steve Millington on keyboards, and Thea um, mm. Gilmore, of course. And I, I brought Ian Thompson. Who regularly plays bass with me, and and Dave Holdenham on other guitar. Again, that was a band for a week. And we made Stamping Ground. So we have to talk. That was um, a duet with Fear Gilmore, and, and you've worked on her material as well as Fear on on that particular song. Yeah, Nigel and Fear have asked me on a, a couple of occasions to play bits and pieces on her albums. I've played bits and pieces on Nigel's albums as well. Thea's actually sung on a, a couple of tracks on, on Lindisfarne albums, uh, mainly the, the last um, studio album, Promenade. She, she, she was on that. I fancied doing a duet, you know, the old country thing of uh, boy and girl or man and woman singing a, a two-part song about each other. And Thea was the obvious choice. Uh, I had the idea for the song, and Nigel and I finished it, and we brought Thea in to sing the, the female part. It's no good sitting gazing at 
table We have to talk Before this night is through To close, it'd be good to pick a song that was one of yours, but um, I think Lindisfarne certainly played this live as well. It's uh, Freedom Square. That's from your solo record, Rendezvous Cafe. So Rendezvous Cafe, that was a, a collection of material, that almost a, a collection of the songs that you'd written over many years, old and new. That's right, yeah. It's, it's subtitled Songs from the Lindisfarne Years, 19, whatever it was, to 2002, I think it was when the last Lindisfarne recording of that band was done. You know, when you when you write a song and present it to the band, 
they change it, mm. mostly for the better. You know, they enhance it, they add other instrumentation, they, they make suggestions, they bring a whole new thing to it. But, but I wanted to present the songs the way I'd originally written them, and which is the way I play them when I do solo gigs, or, or gigs with just me and Ian playing the, the double bass, because that's how I do them. You know, I can't be a band mm. on, on my own. Uh, uh, people at gigs asked me if they could buy that. So, uh, so I did a double CD of all those songs, which was a pleasure to do. It was dead easy. I just went to, to my mate Ron Angus's studio down in Chesterley Street with Ian and his double bass, and, and we just knocked them all out. It was easy peasy. But uh, Freedom Square, yeah, that, that was included on the last album, Promenade, by what we might call, uh, I suppose, the, the, uh, the inheritors of the original Lindisfarne Mantle, the, the Billy Mitchell band, because we've got a new band now, but it's kind of a different band. But uh, yeah, but that version of Freedom Square has only got two verses, so it only tells two-thirds of the story, and the one on Rendezvous Cafe. It's got all three verses, ah. so you, you get the whole lot. The lyrics are particularly important in that song? Yes. It's basically about, well, it's about the the links between slavery and music and freedom, because it was inspired by a story I heard about a place called Congo Square in New Orleans, where the slaves were given Sunday afternoon off if they beat the church. You know, there was that, that, that was the deal. You go to church on Sunday morning, you can have Sunday afternoon off. Um, I mean, how, how much does that tell you? You know, there's so much just in that simple quid pro quo deal. There's, there's such a lot implied about manipulation and freedom and, and so forth. But anyway, they, they used to go down to Congo Square on a Sunday afternoon and they could do what they liked and, and they got together and, sang songs, danced, told stories, and it became, this is in, in the early 1800s, and it, it became a, a, a melting pot, you know, cultural cross-pollination of ideas, and it's now Gosh. what people think of as where jazz originated. So, Rod, um, I guess you're, um, you're kind of waiting until you can get moving again, and I assume... Um, um, you know, playing live with Linda, hopefully when you can get going again, it, it, there may be more shows with Rab. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we had we had three penciled in for March, which have gone by the board. Obviously, uh, we we will be out and about if if we can, when we can, we'll be doing it. Because yeah. again, me me and Rab, it's just so easy to do. It just falls into place. We barely even need to rehearse, although we do a bit, you know. In, yeah. With, with send each other stuff, but it, it it just it just falls together naturally, and we spend yeah, probably as much time talking on stage as we do playing. But uh, but people seem to like it anyway. Brilliant, uh, Rod. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, and um, what a great bunch of tracks we've had today. Your songwriting, uh, your work in Lindisfarne, and your work with other artists is remarkable. Thanks so much, Rod. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jason. It has for me too. Captain, let me go downtown 
Sunday and my friends will be around I've been to church like I'm supposed to do And I prayed that my girl's gonna be there too And Jesus said to me One day you'll be free But for now, every Sunday Dancing in the square We'll sing our father's songs There'll be freedom in the air And we'll plant a seed Maybe it'll grow So please, Captain, let me go And that's right, that's right I'm going down to Freedom Square That's right, that's right, that's right And that's right, that's right Gonna meet my people there That's right, that's right, that's right Well, I've slaved all week and the day has come around When I can slip these chains and lay my burden down On Freedom Square, old Hannah shine on bright On the working man and make him feel all right That's right, that's right, that's right. 
That's right, that's right, that's right. I said that's right, that's right, that's right. I said that's right, that's right, that's right. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much plus any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too Thank you.